Hello and welcome to the Church Society podcast. I'm Ros Clark, I'm the Associate Director of Church Society and I'm your host here on these podcasts. This week it's very exciting uh, for me to be talking to Rebecca McLaughlin. Um, I'm not going to introduce her now because she's about to tell you all about herself. Now, Rebecca McLaughlin, it's very exciting to talk to you because I think you are so far my first transatlantic guest on the podcast. (laughs) Tell us where you are and uh, where you're actually from. Well, so here's the thing. I'm actually theologically transatlantic because I'm married to an American man. So I am one flesh with an American while being English. Therefore, yeah, there you go. Um, I am from London, pretty much. Um, but I married a guy from Oklahoma. It's kind of hard to find good evangelical men in England. So you've got to import sometimes. And he dragged me kicking and screaming across the pond. I was America's most reluctant immigrant about uh, <laughs> 11 years ago. It would be 11 years. Gosh, that long. <clears throat> yeah. And so I have three half American children. I say that they're American from the waist down. They have good American like athletic legs for playing sports, but nice British brains. Um, and yeah, we've been living in <laughs> Cambridge, Massachusetts, which I call New Cambridge, much to the irritation of folks here uh, for the last <laughs> decade and change. And so you've been in America for 11 years. That it, I'm slightly struggling to believe it's really been that long. But anyway, tell us what you've been doing there. You, um, you used to work for a thing called the Veritas Forum, didn't you? Just um, what is that and, and what were you doing for them? I did. So maybe I'll go just one slight step back to explain mm. the method of my madness. So I um, I did a PhD in English at Cambridge and then went to... Real Cambridge. Real Cambridge, proper Cambridge. Uh, and then went to this fabulous institution called Oak Hill, with which I believe you are familiar, Roz, uh, oh. and got to spend three years doing theological training there. And my hope there was to equip myself to be in some way involved in evangelistic ministry, potentially with a more academic angle you know, reaching some of the folks who I was rubbing shoulders with in university at the sort of undergrad and graduate level and marrying an American along the way threw a bit of a wrench in my plans because I was planning to stay in England I love the UK uh, I, I'm keenly aware of the gospel needs and opportunities there uh, frankly America seemed like a place with more gospel resources and I, I, I wasn't uh, delighted by the prospect of moving over here And when I did move over here, I started working for an organization called the Veritas Forum, which was hosting events in universities with Christian professors talking about their faith in relation to their work. And it was in partnership with uh, campus ministries. So getting together essentially all the different pieces of the, the Christian body in the university and helping them to host events that were genuine university events, often dialogues with non-Christian professors about some of life's hardest questions, but giving students an opportunity to hear from some of the world's leading Christian thinkers about how they're relating their faith to their work and why they, as an MIT professor or a Harvard professor or a Stanford professor or an Oxford professor or a Cambridge professor, uh, actually believe that Jesus provides credible um, and satisfying uh, answers to life's hardest questions. Really interesting. When you say Christian professors, mm-hmm. I mean, you're not talking about necessarily theology professors, are you? So lots of these no. would be people who work in the sciences or the humanities and in all kinds of spheres uh, of the academic world. Right. So I live a short walk from MIT over here. And we used to joke that MIT was our Christian professor sort of boot camp because there are actually a good number of very serious Christians there 
in everything from engineering to um, uh, what's the word for when computers are clever? Artificial intelligence, that's the one. <laughs> um, so people who had a, a vast range of academic expertise, often in areas that people on, on the street would not at all associate with Christian belief and certainly not evangelical mm. belief. And yet here they were as you know, dean of students at MIT or even the, the, actually the president of MIT um, was for, for several years. She was the first female president of MIT and she was also a, a serious Christian. She didn't actually speak at our events, but you know that was one of the. One of That's the really that one exciting, discovers. isn't it? Because I think my experience is often so. My my very first degree was in physics, mm-hmm. and um, I mean I I keep that quite quiet because I really don't remember any of it. <laughs> but my experience is often that it's the people who are not scientists who don't have any science understanding or or experience who are the ones who will sort of wave their hands and say, oh, "Well, you know, science has disproved." Mm-hmm. Christianity or you know you can't believe that because science and so to have people who are really really experts in their field saying actually you can yeah I think that's something that that is really encouraging for for other Christians who maybe aren't quite such serious scientists you know or yeah people can just say maybe that's not quite such a, a straightforward excuse or argument that I thought it might be yeah, and actually one of the good friends I made through this process is a lovely man called Ian Hutchinson, who is also a Brit and also went to Cambridge and became a Christian while he was at Cambridge, was baptised on his 21st birthday in King's College Chapel, no less. And he's actually recently wrote a book, which I helped to edit, um, called Can a Scientist Believe in Miracles? So yeah, it was really fun to work with some of the, the leading Christian thinkers who honestly most people just hadn't heard of. You know, they were very well known in their academic fields, but most Christians had no idea they even existed, and certainly most non-Christians. And even if you stopped an MIT student and asked them, "Are there any Christians at the you know professors at the institute?" they would probably say, "No, of course not. What are you talking about?" And so, so it was exciting to be part of of discovering and um, kind of coaching, encouraging, and, and equipping these incredible people who God's raised up in the university, uh, and, yeah. and so to be doing that kind of on the back end for for the best part of a decade. Wow. And so I guess partly as a result of, of your experiences doing all of that, you have recently written a book. I have. Um, um, so we will put a link uh, to the book because I think it is now, it's only just, I think, come out in the UK, but it is now available in the UK. So we will put a link to that uh, on the blog post. The, the book is called Confronting Christianity. Just tell us what, what it's about. So the subtitle, which gives away some of the meat of it, is 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. And the idea of using the language of confronting Christianity was that on the one hand, it positions the book, I I hope, to be um, accessible to someone who thinks of Christianity as something that needs to be confronted with some really hard questions, has some real uh, intellectual and ethical objections to the Christian faith. But on the other hand, we as humans need to be confronted by Christianity. And I think uh, that's true whether or not we think of Christianity as even uh, at all credible, because if you peel back um, the layers of the the onion and uh, you know dust off some of the um, <clears throat> the the mythology and propaganda that's accrued around uh, ideas of belief in the twenty first century, you find that actually Christianity is as vigorous and thriving as a worldview as it ever has been. Um, that its real competitor in the next 40 years is not 
atheism, secular humanism, or relativism, but is actually Islam. Um, And when you realize that the big question is Christianity or Islam, not how soon will religion go away, you actually do have to confront Christianity and and have another proper look at it. So we're not going to go through uh, all 12 questions. People can buy the book and read the book. But if you had to pick, pick, say, three that you think are some of the, the really big things that Christianity needs to confront that mm. are issues that the world is, is looking at Christians saying you know that's just not a, a credible thing to believe or an mm-hmm. acceptable way to behave or mm-hmm. uh, whatever What's, what things would you say are, are really up there to pick three slightly arbitrarily but not entirely uh, you could say diversity science and sexuality those are certainly three of the big ones and the reason I often start with diversity is that for most of my sort of secular liberal friends, they believe passionately in diversity as, a, as an ethical good. And they are highly sceptical of Christianity because of the exclusive truth claims that it's making. Like, it's okay, you know, it's okay to be a Christian if that works for you. But as soon as you start saying Jesus is not just my Lord, but actually the Lord for every person and every place and every time you're making what feels to many of my friends like a a completely illegitimate um, cultural imperialist attempt to impose your white Western values and beliefs on other people. And I think it really opens up conversations in in a fresh and interesting way when you confront people in a gentle and loving manner with the fact that actually Christianity is the greatest movement for diversity in all of history. And that racial diversity in particular was plumbed into Christianity from the first, that Jesus was breaking down every racial and cultural barrier of his day and then commanded his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And then we see one of the first converts in the book of Acts is an Ethiopian man, like the first African Christian, who is incidentally highly literate reading the scroll of Isaiah. Um, So, you know, away with the idea that that Christianity was somehow uh, imported to Africa and the colonial era. Actually, no, Africa had some of the earliest um, Christian roots Ethiopia became a, the second, I think, Christian state in the world before you know St. Patrick ever went to Ireland. So l- let's shed this idea that f- from the first that Christianity was a, a white Western religion. And then look, let's look at the, the history of Christianity and the, the reality of the global church today and realise that actually the majority, increasingly the majority of people who identify as Christians are neither white nor Westerners, um, that Christianity has always been a, a movement of and for women, um, and that actually women of colour are the most likely demographic to be Christians. Yeah. And and that Christianity, actually, of of any global belief system, including atheism, has the most even cultural and um, racial sort of spread. And suddenly the the fact that Christians are making universal truth claims irrespective of culture and time and place is no longer a, a white Western imperialist move, but actually... A, a recognition of the fact, oh no, this, these, these exclusive truth claims are being made by people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so we can't just kind of dismiss it on the grounds of, of a, an ethical commitment to, to, to write diversity. Yeah, so there was that very striking thing, wasn't there, a few weeks ago in, um, it was in Southgate, I think, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Where, yeah. where you know, the, the sort of black African man who is preaching mm-hmm. about Jesus is, you know, being told by the police that, that you know, he has to stop and that he's being racist um and yeah. and it's it's yeah. quite a striking yeah um sort 
sort of image, isn't it, of how actually, you know, this is not something that a white person is is trying to impose, but actually it's a black person saying this. Yeah, Um, and it's fascinating, even the language there. So if I'm recalling correctly, uh, the... um, the African street preacher was saying, uh, I, I will not go away because they need to hear that Jesus is the only way, the truth and the life. And the white British officer says, nobody wants to listen to that. They want you to go away. Yeah. And he replies, nobody wants to listen to that. You will listen when you are dead. You will listen when you are dead. And I mean, it's kind yeah. of to our, to our white Western sensibilities, breaking every kind of uh, polite <laughs> yeah you know, it's quite, it feels quite uncomfortable people. and awkward to listen to even though we agree with him I, right yeah. but but the reality is that a a black african um preacher sharing the exclusive message of jesus and raising the specter of judgment while white Westerners block their ears, is, is a little parable for how the religious world today is, is functioning. And so we think, we in the West often think that we are um, embracing diversity by silencing Christianity, and actually it's the reverse. Yes, very interesting. Um, okay, so diversity, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think uh, in all kinds of ways, and partly that relates to uh, sexuality as well, doesn't it? So that is one of the um, great mm-hmm. criticisms being thrown at the church, certainly in the UK, I imagine in the same in the US, you know, that we are not inclusive because um, we uh, have a particular uh, understanding that homosexuality is wrong, that there are issues with, you know, how we should express our sexuality within certain limits and therefore, yeah. you know, we're not diverse, we're not tolerant, we're not mm-hmm. inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how can Christianity do a better job of confronting that issue? And dealing with that difficult question. Yeah, so much to say here. And so I'll start with the entry point that you raised there, which is the fact that people often say the gay rights movement is the new civil rights movement. And so any ethical objection to same-sex marriage for Christians is equivalent to uh, racial bigotry and places you on the wrong side of history. I think whatever we believe actually about the ethics of, of sexuality, we need to be really careful about that kind of equivalence because number one, theologically, uh, as strongly as the Bible cuts against gay marriage, it actually cuts in favour of biracial marriage, for example. So any I mean, Christians in America several decades ago who were trying to argue that, that, that Christianity opposed um, mixed race marriages had literally no legs to stand on scripturally um so from a theological perspective the grain is completely in the opposite direction um if we think about the the history of of thought scientists tried really hard to demonstrate that there were meaningful biological differences between people of different races there was a strong agenda for that both in the us and in the uk and in, in europe um, and they they came up with nothing, right? Because actually, yeah. uh, there aren't any. Yeah. There, there really aren't any uh, and that's kind of important. And yet there are meaningful biological differences be- between men and women that are quite relevant when it comes to sex and marriage. And so to glibly equate a, a marriage between a black person and a white person, for example, to marriage between two women or two men, actually is quite problematic when we think about the, the battles that were fought to establish that actually black people and white people could and should get married if they wish to. Um, yeah. So there are, there are real sort of issues there, even again, before we've 
kind of thought deeply theologically, we also have to recognise that if you label everybody who opposes gay marriage for Christians as a as a homophobic bigot and like the equivalent of a racist, most of the people that you are um, saying that about are actually women of colour. So you're accusing uh, black and brown people in uh, in the US and globally and, and um, I think in the UK as well of being like bigoted racists who don't really get it. Yeah. Um, so there was a really interesting thing um, last term where there was a big outcry, I don't quite know what, if anything, has come of it, of about Islamic schools mm-hmm. refusing to teach yep. Um, yep. homosexuality in the UK. And it... And you, you, it's quite interesting watching the sort of liberal commentators tie themselves into knots about it yeah. because they don't yeah. want to be Islamophobic, but they also want to say, you know, they're being homophobic. And yeah, suddenly right. it becomes a more complicated system of who's wrong rather than just being able to say, oh, well, they're, they're the Christians. They must be the ones who are wrong. Yeah, and um, it's interesting, even this expression that you're on the wrong side of history, which is profoundly rhetorically powerful, uh, is highly likely to be actually empirically wrong whether or not you know anybody likes it mm. because if christianity and islam uh, are as it, it's expected going to continue to be the two big players in the world and actually people of no religious belief is expected to decline in the coming years then it's almost certainly not true that actually in you know our, our children or grandchildren's generation everybody in the world is going to agree on this issue in fact it's probably not and it's fascinating even when people invoke that sort of language it's like oh so you think there is a big story of history, uh, yeah. you know, for friends who are not Christians, you, you think that there is a story of history that somehow the um, the arc of history is bending toward justice, as people sometimes put it. You know, why, why do you think that? Yeah, why uh, do you so, think things are getting better? Yeah, So Absolutely. there are all sorts of, of ways in which the, the powerful language that's used to quickly dismiss and silence those who are um, arguing for uh, traditional, or, or I would say orthodox Christian sexual ethics, um, they're actually quite, you know, quite problematic in a number of different directions. But I think if, if, if you're asking what do I think the church can do better in this area, it's a long list. But I think, number one, we need to have a f- much deeper theology of gender and sexuality than we often do. We need to recognise that God was not constrained by the reality of male and female and um, sort of sexuality. He didn't just like find it lying around and decide to make rules about it, uh, you know, arbitrary rules designed to keep people out. God actually dreamt up the reality of male and female and dreamt up the idea of Christian marriage in order to tell us a story about himself. And we see this throughout the Old Testament, as you know better than I was with your Old Testament expertise. We see God as the husband and his people as the wife. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, we see Jesus stepping onto the global stage as the bridegroom. We then see Christian marriage pictured by Paul in Ephesians as a, a little like scale model of Christ's sacrificial love for the church. And in the book of Revelation, we see the marriage of Jesus and his people bringing heaven and earth back together. So my marriage to my husband is not primarily about me and him. It is about us being a little dramatized version a little clue woven into human reality of what it means for jesus to love his people just as you know my children growing up with my husband as their father gives them in his best moments a little glimpse of what it means for god to love us as a father so i think we we have to reclaim a much deeper biblical theology 
of, of marriage, which goes way beyond, oh, there are verses in the Bible that say, don't do this, this and this. We actually have to understand what the project is about in the first place to understand why. Yeah, you're so I think, I think that's really interesting. I mean, I absolutely think that's right. And um, we're going to be talking about some of that stuff at a, a Church Society conference coming up um, in a week or two's time. And I think it's I think it's really important. I guess what that is going to do, or I hope what that is going to do, is give Christians much more confidence mm. in what they believe and why they believe it. I'm not sure how much help that's I'm going to feel that will be when my non-Christian friend comes to me and says, you know, why shouldn't I just get married to you know my partner of the the same sex? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have to start really far back with that argument don't you and maybe that's what we have to do is be willing to start much further back well so this is the thing i actually think this i was going to say strategy that's not even necessarily the right word but i think going back to from a christian perspective what on earth is marriage about in the first place is taking that step back to where we can make a meaningful case to a, a friend because a it's an opportunity to tell them the gospel i i don't think you can answer the question why do Christians not believe in same-sex marriage without sharing the gospel? And if we think we can, we're missing something. Um, but but B, it's also, it, it makes clear to them, this is not about you saying uh, you have like particular preconceived beliefs about them and their you know individual person that they're wanting to, to be married to. And frankly, we shouldn't expect non-Christians to live up to Christian ethics or abide by them. That's, yeah, that's not a concern. One of the- one of the biggest things I want to say to my friend in that sort of situation is, you know, I, my goal here isn't for you to stop your same-sex relationship. My goal here right. is for you to come to know the Lord Jesus. And, right. you know, yeah. that will have yeah. all kinds of implications. Yeah. But our goal isn't to somehow convert people away from being gay. I mean, you know, right. that, that's a non-starter as a, yeah. Um, yeah. As a strategy. Yeah. So. And I think the two other important things to, to say there are one that... And I can do I can do this a little bit myself actually because I have always been romantically attracted to women. If I was not a Christian, I think it was highly likely I'd be married to a woman rather than than a man. Um, so I can speak out of my own experience on that. I also have a, a number of close friends who, you know, one of my best friends, for instance, came to Christ when she was a. Uh, um, in a lesbian relationship or she'd just been broken up with actually by her girlfriend uh, she was an atheist undergrad at Yale, Yale University um, and came to Christ from, from that background and so was reading the scriptures with a strong desire actually to find that they did affirm same-sex marriage and found that they didn't much to her sort of frustration at the time um, I, I think we need to uh, learn about the, the people who can speak with um, authority on this issue and not for a minute be dismissed as homophobic bigots who just don't get it. I, I think we need those people sort of in, in the global church, like the folks who can stand up on a stage, but I think we also need the people in our own communities. And one of the things that's interesting to me as I've explored this more just from a sociological and psychological perspective is that actually the incidence of women like me who are same-sex attracted, but not exclusively so, so could in fact be married to a man, is, is really quite high. It's about um, 14% of the population. Mm. Uh, and so we need to, to discover the people within our own communities um, who will be able to speak to this issue from a position of clear personal empathy uh, and introduce our friends to them. And as part of that, we need to shed the actual homophobia that I think has infected our churches for years to where it's much easier to confess a pornography addiction than same-sex attraction in a lot of evangelical churches is the reality. And that's that's to our shame. Yes. 
Exactly. Um, We're never going to start hearing those voices and hearing those stories, particularly of the ordinary folk, as you say, until we make our churches a place where people feel safe to do that. And I think just the last piece of that, which I feel really passionately about, um, not that I don't, you may notice I feel passionately about a number of these things for us. Um, People sometimes say the Bible condemns same-sex relationships, and I want to say no. The Bible actually commands same-sex relationships of a level of intimacy that we Christians seldom reach. Because the language that the scriptures use about how Christians should love each other within the body is, you know, number one, we are one body. Uh, number two, we're brothers and sisters. Number three, we are comrades in arms. Um, Paul talks about uh, being with the Thessalonians like a nursing mother with her children. He describes his friend Anisimus as his very heart. It's this radically intimate language that we hear in the New Testament. And we see people living together and sacrificing together and, and meeting each other's relational needs in, in ways that, frankly, in our at least in our Western church contexts, we seldom do. And I think be- because we have as the church writ large, at least in the West, bought into this idea that the only real intimacy is is sexual intimacy. And so it's all about marriage. And if you don't have marriage, then you basically got nothing. Mm. We've completely lost a biblical vision of singleness. We've we've largely lost the biblical reality that the church is the primary family unit, not the nuclear family. And I think in order to reclaim and sustain a sort of a, a compelling sexual ethic, we actually need to reclaim fierce abiding non-erotic non-romantic love between christians and model that for the world yeah Yeah, absolutely i mean it it is really fascinating isn't it how so few modern commentators are able to look at the friendship between david and jonathan and see anything other than a homosexual relationship there Mm. and it just speaks i think to the lack of those kind of friendships in our in our society and in our churches today you yeah. know that we just don't have people yeah who we are that close to unless you happen to be married to them um great um i want to talk we've only got a few minutes left but i think a lot of this i think is to do with what perhaps we have not been good at in the evangelical church which is really bringing to bear our mind and our Mm -hmm. reason Mm -hmm. on our faith um you know i i think it's so important is it that the the lord tells us to to love god with all our heart and soul and strength and mind and Mm -hmm. and how are we doing that and you know many many lovely godly christians well-meaning christians have been scared i think to ask these kind of questions and and therefore they haven't been talked about a lot in our churches necessarily um and um we yeah we've just sort of you know said well because it's in the bible or you know something um what what would you suggest if people are listening to this thinking yeah maybe that's me maybe i haven't really thought about questions Mm. in the way that i should and i haven't really done that how can people be better at bringing together their their faith and their their reason in that sort of way you know which is a thing mm-hmm. which we are supposed to do and which there has been a, a long long tradition of christians yeah. doing but somehow i think in the last 50 to 100 years we've maybe lost a bit of that where could people start to yeah to think differently and be better at this yeah it's a great question i think we need to start by recognizing that as you say christianity is the greatest intellectual movement in all of history and so this is our inheritance. This is not some sort of threat to our faith. And the way that I, I sometimes think about this is it's a little bit like um, stewarding your, your financial resources. So on the one hand, 
the gospel is simple and accessible to somebody who's you know three years old or has uh, the the mental capabilities of a three-year-old for whatever reason or somebody who's just like not intellectually minded the the christian faith is accessible to them um however if you're somebody who has had a a significant degree of education or has been gifted with a you know a a mind that works and engages a a number of um, questions at, at a higher level and you are finding that you are not engaging that brain um, in terms of, of your faith, it's a bit like somebody saying, well, yes, I have, I earn £100,000 a year, but I should only really be expected to give away the same amount of money as somebody who earns £15,000 a year, um, because otherwise it's not fair, because not everybody can give away this much money. Like, oh, well, actually, no, God's, God's gifted you with a job yeah. that has enabled you to earn £100,000 a year, and he expects you to use that money for his glory. And so I think we need to stop being afraid of challenging ourselves or other people intellectually when it comes to faith. I think we need to stop being afraid of complexity. We need to stop feeling like we have to kind of protect Jesus or our faith from our hard questions, because uh, actually that, that rests on a, a fragility of faith that we don't need to have. We can actually throw whatever we like at, at the Christian faith and we'll find that, yeah. that Jesus stands up to scrutiny. So I think we need to lose some of that fear um, my hope with, with this book is actually that it'll be a little bit of a, a gateway drug for people because uh, what I'm doing a lot of the time is actually telling the stories of and making accessible the insights of Christian thinkers in a whole range of fields. So my hope is that somebody could read the book and get curious about one particular dimension of it um, that maybe they have questions about or their friends have questions about or just is aligned with their, their interests and then dig in further and learn more. And I think we shouldn't be afraid of, of investing that way. And actually, we should be excited about it. Yeah, I agree. I think, I mean, you know, I don't want to believe something that's not true. Right. And if it's true, it's going to be true however hard you test it and yes. however difficult the questions you are ask of it are. And, you know, and if it's not true, I, you know, I, I yeah, I don't want to keep believing it. So we yeah. ought to to not be scared of that. And, yeah. Um, be willing to do the hard work to really grapple with things and think about it. So I haven't read your book yet, but I'm looking forward to it. And I <laughs> am I'm sure uh, it will be very helpful uh, for people who maybe are thinking, yeah, actually, that's something I need to do more of, um, is think about those hard questions and deal with them. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for um, having me. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do think about uh, giving us a rating or a review if you listen via a podcast app. Uh, You might also share this episode with other people you think would be interested. Um, At Church Society, we're thrilled to produce this podcast amongst our whole range of publications, books and uh, downloadable resources and quarterly magazine and journal, all kinds of things. Do check out the website in case there's other things uh, that you also might enjoy. And if you enjoy the work uh, of Church Society on the podcast and in other ways, please consider whether you might become a member of Church Society. Again, you can download the membership form uh, on the website. There's an annual subscription, but you get uh, all kinds of uh, member benefits uh, for that. And we would love to have you uh, standing with us as we seek uh, to promote uh, gospel truth within the Church of England uh, today. We'll be back again next week. And I'm really excited actually about next week's episode. I'll be talking to Vaughan Roberts from St Ebbs in Oxford and a number of undergraduates at Oxford and other students who are considering uh, whether Anglican ministry 
might be something that the Lord is calling them towards. So I think it'll be really interesting to hear their perspective on where the Church of England is at today. So do tune in again for that next Monday. 